wonderful Savior I know for sure. All of my days are held in your hand, crafted into your perfect plan. You gently call me into your presence, guiding me by your us really we sometimes like to fight that don't we yeah we kind of have our own idea of how we want to look and act and feel and things we want to accomplish in life but he's trying to mold us just have to yield to that well let's take our bibles turn over the book of first timothy first timothy chapter three tonight <coughs> excuse me um <clears throat> of course timothy is uh the son of a gentile father and a believing grandma and mom and uh of course, we know that he's ultimately going to be influenced immensely by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul would ultimately become his mentor. Timothy would be his protege. And, of course, he would continue to grow in grace and, 
in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ till one day he ultimately becomes pastor of the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> so early on, the Apostle Paul is speaking to him through letter, trying to, uh, you know, help him because there's so many needs and issues in the church that need addressed. And uh, the Apostle Paul is aware that there are a number of doctrinal issues in the church that need to be addressed. And so he, he sends Timothy to Ephesus with the express purpose of trying to, to root those out, to expose them, to extinguish them. And, um, you know, he would charge Timothy to stand amidst every obstacle of the faith, to uh, face those that were trying to propagate and promote uh, false teaching. And so Timothy had to stand. He had to make a stand. And as a young man, that's not always easy. But we know that Timothy prevailed in the midst of that church. I mean, there were people who had been there probably for quite some time, had been entrenched in that ministry. Timothy comes along, a young man, and starts to say, hey, we've got to change some things, and there's some issues here. And the way we've been living and the way we've been serving the Lord may not be the way God would intend it to be. And boy, I'll tell you what, that wasn't easy. And I'm sure that that created some real friction as a matter of fact, there were those who had, the Bible said, put away or thrust away the faith. We're talking about, the, the Bible says, some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. There were literally those who had resisted and who had pushed away the truth. The, the truth that they had once believed. I mean, it wasn't just a matter of that they had uh, uh, some doubts, maybe. No, they were beginning to, to uh, deliberately reject the truth that they had once professed to be faith and truth. And so there were some real issues here. But thank God that Timothy, a man of God, was encouraged by an elderly man of God, somebody that came along and just said, listen, you keep going, young man. The, the God called you, and you can do this with God's help. And boy, I'll tell you what, he did just that. Now, as we summarize what we've been through over the last few weeks, we've noted that the book's divided into two major sections. This book of 1 Timothy is divided into uh, to these two parts, how to build an effective church. And then also how to become an effective Christian. We've been looking at this idea or this, this thought of how to build an effective church. And we said how to do that was, we, we, we noted the church and its doctrine. And then we went on to the church and its devotion. And now we're going to touch on another area, the church and its duties. And so that brings us to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. And so now we want to begin there in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 7. And we're going to note today the qualification of bishops or pastors. That's what we're going to address and look at today. And uh, we may have to look at it next week too. But let's go ahead and take uh, the time to read chapter 3, verse 1 through 7 in the book of 1 Timothy. The Bible says, this is a true saying. <clears throat> I'm glad it's true. But anyway, isn't that funny when you say things like that? I'm telling you the truth. No, I'm telling you, this is, uh, this is the truth. And you think, why does somebody say that? Because if they really are honest, why should they say that? I think, again, what I think is happening here is just like we say it, we kind of use it as a point of emphasis. Listen, now, you really need to take heed. You really need to listen up because this is the truth. Well, we know you're not going to lie, Paul, but because you said it that way, obviously, this is pretty important stuff. Notice what he says. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, 
one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. <clears throat> now the word of God paints a picture of what the pastor should and shouldn't be. And it identifies the kind of traits and qualities that must be present in their life. But it also paints a picture of those characteristics and qualities that don't belong as well. Now, these characters and qualities, you know, these traits kind of guide us. They kind of help us to evaluate the qualifications of a person who would be, I guess, occupying the place of the pastorate. So there's a number of people that come along and say, boy, I, I think uh, I'd like to preach. Well, that, it, that's fine, but there is a qualification that must be met. And <clears throat> we find in the Bible <clears throat> that this qualification deals with the, the position of bishop. But we also realize that there are three terms that basically say the same thing. There's three terms, bishop, elder, and pastor. You'll hear all three of those through the Word of God. You'll, you'll hear them maybe even in church from time to time. Those three positions, uh, those three names, I should say, uh, terms express or describe the same position. So if someone says the bishop, the elder, or pastor, each one of them is dealing with the same exact position. Each accentuates a slightly different characteristic, however, of that position. For instance, bishop expresses the idea of watching over the flock. While the word elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it, it, it does refer to the same function of shepherding, but it expresses a need for a degree of maturity in the life of that particular shepherd. So then you come to pastor that kind of combines the two a little bit and says, okay, so now it needs to be somebody that's shepherding the flock, but also has an element of maturity in their life, spiritual maturity. <clears throat> so that, that's really what we have going on here. And so pastor or bishop or elder, as described here in chapter 3, are the same position. And so we're going to figure out now, we're going to be exposed to the qualifications of the person that will stand behind the pulpit as the pastor of a church. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and help us over these next few moments, as well as however long it takes to, to get through these. Lord, we love you. We need you. Lord, help us to realize what the requirements are, what the qualifications really are. Father, we need to know that because, Lord, ultimately, Father, somebody's going to fill the pulpit here one day. And, Father, somebody's going to fill a pulpit across this country. Lord, as members of a church, we need to understand what's required of that particular bishop or pastor or elder. So help us, Lord, to know these qualifications and to truly have them hidden in our heart and to be able to really gauge and to discern. So that, Father, as we look at a pastor, as we consider a man of God possibly for a pulpit down the road one day, Maybe even one that's sent out from our church will realize what really needs to be evident in their life before they can truly receive that ordination and be sent to that particular ministry. Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there's a lot of, of uh, misunderstanding in this area. And again, we, we know there's qualifications and probably every one of you in the room would say, yeah, I've, I've known that. But let me tell you this. Let a nice young man in our church that's been in every church service come forward and say, I want to go preach. 
And all of a sudden, a church comes on and says, man, that's a sharp-looking young man. We'd like him to candidate for a church here, our church. We'd all go, man, he seems like a nice young fellow. He's sharp-looking. He's faithful in church. Sure, why not? Well, there's a lot of other qualifications other than looking good and being faithful in church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And sometimes the pastor gets a bad rap because he doesn't endorse somebody. And everybody goes, he's just so mean. He's so about wanting to keep everybody at the church. And nobody ever measures up to his standard. You know, they're busting their butts for him and for this church. And here he is trying to keep everybody there because he's afraid of losing tithes and offerings. And he doesn't want to lose members and trying to build an empire. and, And look at him over here, not giving just due to this young man. I mean, he's got a great future. He's a sharp looking young fellow. He talks well. And man, look, he comes to every service. He's so faithful. I don't understand that pastor. What's his problem? Nobody would ever say that, of course, here. But that's the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes when we start dealing with it. Now, now that, the reason I tell you is twofold. Because one, you need to understand it from that perspective. Number two, what if God calls me to the mission field? What if God sends me home to be with Him? What if God takes me and says to get out of the ministry and retire from this ministry or whatever it might be down the road? You better know what the man of God who's going to fill this pulpit needs to be. See, we've got to really have a grasp on this thing. We've got to understand it because what will happen is there will be a kind of a committee that would be put together probably. There will be a group of fellows that will sit down and, and they'll bring in candidates and they'll pa- preach to you. And you'll be voting on who will step into this pulpit and all of that. But the easiest thing to do is go, man, he's good looking. Man, his wife's sharp. Man, their family's really cute. You don't know if they're a bunch of aliens or not. All you know is you've met him for the first time and they seem really like a cute family. And boy, he can preach really good. So that's the guy for us. No, that's not the guy necessarily for you. You better know a little bit more about it than that. <clears throat> There's a spiritual side to this. <laughs> Unfortunately, more of it's spiritual than physical. And most of the time, we as members and we as human beings look at the outside, not the inside. But so let's consider some of these real quick because it's really important. First of all, <clears throat> notice, it, we, we note the desire, first of all. Right, because this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, maybe this isn't, you know, the way to normally start, but I just like that he says, if a man. I think right there just cuts out a bunch of people right there. Okay, if a man. All right, now listen, I don't think that, that, that the Bible's all gender neutral. Now, I do think sometimes when he uses the word man, a masculine term, he's talking about all Christians and so forth because we all have a man in us. But, but, but when he's talking here, it's very specific. When, when a man, I mean, if a man desire the office of a bishop, uh, I, listen, you can believe what you want, do whatever you want. Uh, you know, uh, coddle up to family and friends who have pastors that are so-called women and all that and try not to be offensive to them. Do whatever you want to do. But I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing scriptural. There's nothing biblical about a woman who's pastoring a church. That's not biblical. Now, that may be culturally acceptable, and that may be socially acceptable, but that is not biblically acceptable. So, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, notice he desireth. He desireth. Paul started out by saying, if a man desire the office. Now, everything begins with a desire. Let me tell you what. Everything good and everything bad begins with a desire in your life. And in this case, a desire is being expressed here. The word translated desire here is a word which means to stretch out. 
So to desire is to long after something, to set one's heart on it, to reach out for it. There ought to be this desire for the, the pastor. There ought to be this desire for the, the place of a bishop. If a man simply, boy, you'd make a great preacher, young man. Well, I guess I could. Nope, he's not the one we want. There has to be a longing. There has to be a desire. And in reality, when it's all said and done, it's got to be something that's placed there even by God Himself. A desire. You know, that same word for desire is translated coveted in chapter 6, verse 10, when the Apostle Paul warns against coveting money. Desiring it. Longing after it. Reaching out for it. By the way, we notice also in that verse that the work which an elder is called to is a good work. It's a good work. Man, it's a worthwhile work. It's a good work. Somebody says, what are you doing? You're like, I'm a pastor. And somebody goes, oh. No, it's a good work. I tell everybody all the time, it's the best work in the world. It's the greatest. I have little kids come up to me and say things like, preacher, you, 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 you preach one day a week and get all that money? And I say, absolutely. Yes, I do. It is the best job in the world. It's awesome. You ought to do it. Work one day and get all that money. They probably think I get everything that goes into those offering plates. But you know what? I'm not going to hurt their little feelings. I'm not going to tell them any different. I hope they want to be a preacher. Enough of them will figure it out in the long run. But the fact is, is that, hey, it's a good work. But by the way, it is work. It is work. Paul goes on to describe the duties. Or excuse, excuse me, I should say, uh, in the book of, of Acts, we see that, Acts chapter 20, we see that the, the duties are described for the, the, the elders. And boy, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things that elders are responsible to do. It's, it's hard work. It, shepherding calls for a lot of time. It, it requires patience and wisdom. You know, I was reading an article just today on something and someone was talking about whether a preacher should drink or not and all that stuff. And one of the points was, he said, well, how in the world would it be if somebody got in a horrible accident, called their pastor up in the evening and said, Pastor, my wife was just in a horrible accident and is in an emergency room, possibly dying. Could you come down and see her? And he said, I'm sorry, but I've had about two or three glasses of wine and I'm legally drunk. I can't get in my car and come down right now. I'll see you in the morning. And it was funny, some of the responses. This was one of those things where they make blogs and stuff. And I was watching some of the responses. And, well, if that's the case. <laughs> I mean, it was just all these stupid things. And I just thought to myself, you know, being in a, a ministry, they said, so a preacher never gets a vacation. A preacher never gets to go away. Never take a day off. The truth is we don't get days off. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm saying this. I don't get a calls in the night maybe like some do. I'll be honest with you. I was just telling my son the other day when we was making some visits. I said, listen, this idea that preachers get called in the middle of the night all the time is really not the truth. At least it's not in my ministry. I don't know. Maybe I just got you scared. Don't you dare call me after dark. But the fact is, the fact is, is that, is that I don't get all those calls. But on the same token, I know I've had those calls. I've been at the hospital all night on Christmas Eve night into Christmas and stayed all night with a family that had gotten a problem, had an issue. I know what that is to do those things and to stay wide awake the next day for your kids because it's not their fault that you have this ministry. God placed you there and he'll give you grace to get through it. 
I know what that's about, and I know what that's like. But the fact is, it's a job. It's a work. It takes effort. It doesn't just happen overnight. I'm so concerned that sometimes, as our young men and some of our older men grow into the, uh, to these places, they think, boy, it's so glamorous to be a preacher. Well, I, I'm not saying that it isn't. It's a wonderful thing. I love being a minister. I wouldn't want to do anything else but pastor, I'll be honest with you. I love doing this. You know, somebody says, do you think you could do something else? Yeah, I think I could, but I don't think God would let me. I mean, I know in my heart I, I could probably sell something. If I can lead somebody to the Lord, I could probably sell a phone. But why would I want to sell phones when I lead people to Christ? And why would I want to do that right now in my life? I've been called to do this. God's calling isn't. God didn't call me to make money selling cars or selling phones or selling houses or doing this or doing that or working as a doctor or a lawyer. He called me to be a preacher. But you better be ready to work if you want to do it God's way. You don't build anything in this life without work. You might not know me yet, but I'm not content staying where we're at. I don't like it. I don't like that apathetical, lazy attitude. That's not about, that's not what I'm about, man. Listen, we're not going to a new building so that we can sit there and enjoy a stage and enjoy a nice uh, building. We're going there to fill it up. Because there are millions of souls dying going to hell. And the fact is, is that unless we don't fill that place up, somebody's going to die and go to hell right where we're at here that doesn't need to and should. We've got to get the job done. Listen, God didn't call, call, whatever. The calling is just, it's work. But thank God it's a work that we can do with God's help. Now again, there must be a desire to pastor. Because there's a number of challenges, a number of things you'll face. I promise you, if you aren't truly have a desire for it, it won't be long you'll want to quit. Now listen, I'll be honest with you. I do not understand how preachers can make statements like this, but I've heard it my whole life. Every Monday morning, I feel like quitting. I always tell them, quit. How in the world can you possibly feel like quitting something you love? I, I love my wife, and sometimes she's gotten on my nerves. Maybe once or twice in my life. I love her. I don't quit on her. And I don't feel like quitting. I, I, I can maybe count on my hand, my literally one hand that I've ever felt that way on a Monday morning. But there's been a couple of days I can remember, I can specifically remember. But that's not what I do every week. I love what I do. I look forward to getting up and coming to the office and getting into the work. I look forward sometimes more than you'd imagine going to a hospital, making a visit. I don't mind stuff like that. I don't always get to do it as much as I like, but I like it when I get a chance to meet with people and encourage folks. I love what I do. And you've got to love it if you're going to do it right here. <clears throat> it can't be second. It has to be first in a man's life. Somebody says, oh, you're throwing your family under the, your family under the bus. That shows how ignorant you are. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. But if you're going to do this, you better love it. There better be a time almost where your wife has to almost say, put the brakes on, baby. Because if that's not how you are with it, it ain't going to get done. I, I, I love it. I love it. By the way, my wife will not be going to the uh, couple's retreat. Someone says, why not? She's the pastor's wife. Because I still believe in family. 
And my wife does not work a job. And one day, we always said, one day, because you don't work a job, you'll be able to be there for your children when they need you. Now, hold on. You listen to me now. I believe my family is more important than the, than the conference this weekend. Yeah. So my wife's going to be at home with her daughter who just had a baby taking care of her. While I'm going to go to the conference and learn how to be a better husband because she told me I have to. <laughs> so we'll get that done either way. But I believe in family, folks. I'm, I'm big on family. Big. And I don't, I don't, it's not second. It's first when it's first. It's, it's, it's what it is when it's supposed to be there. Right now, first, you know what first is right now for me? This right here, what I'm doing. I'm not to be hugging and kissing my wife. I'm be preaching right now. See, that's first right now because that's what I'm doing now. But I guarantee you when it comes time to hold that little grandbaby, that's first. <clears throat> okay, so here we are. Note the desire. Now, note the description, chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, a striker, nor greedy, of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. First of all, he says that he must be blameless. Now, <clears throat> it's important to note that this characteristic's at the top of the list. Blameless. The word you, used here means irreproachable. And that's a big word that really means just free from blame, upright, innocent. That means that his character and his reputation must be stainless. And again, that characteristic's more difficult to maintain in our present world, I believe. And someone says, why? I'll tell you why. Because we have this thing called social media. We have this internet access that we never had before. It makes it much more difficult. Someone says, oh, you're talking about pornography? No, I'm talking about Facebook. I mean, a guy... A man that's going to be in the pulpit in the ministry has to be careful not to say or do anything on Twitter, Facebook, or social media that's going to tarnish his testimony. I have a message I'm putting together for this ministry in this church. It's called, You've Got Egg on Your Face, book. I'm about fed up to hear with hearing reports about some of the things that some of you say and do on Facebook. Some of the little... This, this, and this is that you throw on there and little terms and stuff you use that are so wicked and sinful. You'd never use it in this house, but you'll use it on Facebook. You'll gossip or say something about someone. I'm about fed up because what's going to happen sooner or later is that I'm going to end up having to find out what's going on and deal with it. And I don't like to deal with stuff like that. Matter of fact, I don't have a Facebook account because I don't want to see it. The problem is, is that when people come to me and say, did you hear how so-and-so talked? And I think, no, they didn't say that. They're in the choir. No, they didn't act like that. They're a teacher. No, they didn't act like that. They go out soul winning. Let me tell you something. There are preachers doing the same thing. You need to be very careful what you post and what you say on something that goes around the world and is out there forever. And I'll tell you what, some of you young men, you better be careful. If you think you're going into ministry, if you're going to be blameless, you better be careful. You don't put things on there that will ultimately come back and stab a knife right in your chest and take away the opportunity for you to minister. You better be serious about this thing right now where you're at because Satan would love to ruin your testimony and make you less than blameless already at your age. You be careful with that. 
Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody messes up. The only problem is with Facebook and some of these other social outlets, listen, the fact is, is that they're recalled and they're remembered and they're, they're, they're indelibly impressed upon something somewhere where everyone can access it forever. That's sad. You take one nude photo of yourself, young lady or young man, and it's out there forever. And then you're up there and you decide you're going to pastor a church one day and somebody decides to do a Google check on you and they run back and they see you in that pose or at that bar or drinking those beers or doing those things. It might have been 10 years ago, but the fact is it's out there for everybody to see. And let me tell you something. They go, he's not blameless. Be careful. Think it before you do these stupid things. Say these things. Realize that it's not like you said it on the phone to a friend. We've all done stupid things, said things, and done things. But the fact is it wasn't being recorded in those days. It's now forgotten for the most part, unless you run into the wrong friend. (laughs) And you go, oh. (laughs) We've all been there, haven't we? But it doesn't go away with this. So blameless. So what we're saying is then that the man of God's character is as important as his competence. He may know the word, but his character trumps his confidence. Not only blameless, but the Bible says husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. You know, there's been a a lot of debate on this subject. It's one of those that just never goes away. You know what I mean? And in our culture, in our day, it's it's even more of an issue. You know... Because there were those back in Jesus' day, back in, you know, the Roman days that had, you know, more than one wife that were polygamous. Many have interpreted this directive to mean, you know, no polygamy. One wife at a time. And that's how it's described and that's how it's understood. More than you'll ever know, want to believe that. And I'll tell you why they really want to believe that. Because our divorce rate is so high that we're disqualifying people left and right. And somebody says, well, wait, if you got divorced, see how you'd like it. I know. But I I do believe this, and I, I do. God help me, though. If something like that would happen to me, I do think I'm smart enough to know that I don't deserve, nor should I be in the ministry at that point. I'm not saying that I would like the fact that I can't pastor a church. But I'll tell you what, maybe somebody let me sweep the floors one day. Maybe somebody allow me to get involved in some other area of ministry. I don't know. Maybe I could even be in a paid position. As churches grow and expand, the reality is, is that we're more specialized than ever. You don't have to be a pastor on a staff anymore. You could do something else, I believe. Maybe I could teach at a college somewhere. I could do the work of the ministry somehow, some way, without being in the pastorate. I would hope. If indeed it wasn't me that created this big mess, which... Let's face it, that's a tough one there. They say that the apostle's intention was that a bishop not have more than one wife at a time. On the other hand, there are those that would say that it means no divorce at all. Now, based on that first qualification, blameless, I tend to believe that no divorce is what's meant here. Um, Some would point out the exception clause in the book of Matthew you know, that permits divorce due to fornication. And they'll say things like, well, the innocent party, you know, should not be penalized due to the sin of the other. And and that would seem to make sense. I understand that. But, you know, there are a number of factors that lead up to divorce. A number. Now, I don't really feel confident to judge a person, nor do I feel confident to judge their motives in that particular area. 
And I'm not really sure that anyone can ever really know the whole story in any case like that. I really don't know that we can. Someone says, well, that's her fault. That's his fault. I've talked to both parties in those situations, and it always seems like they make it tough sometimes to decide whose fault it really is. So I don't know that I'm the one to judge that. And as we thumb through the scriptures, and especially as we thumb through this list of qualifications, it's clear that a bishop must obtain the highest standards, and as was mentioned right off the bat, be blameless. Now, not only that, but I want you to consider the qualification for the widow indeed that's outlined in chapter 5 of the same book. Turn to chapter 5, verse 9. And says, why in the world would you believe that a pastor cannot be divorced and pastor church? That it must be the husband of one wife, not just one wife at a time, but actually one wife over a lifetime or until she dies. Why would you say that? Well, one of the main reasons is 1 Timothy 5, I think, is really an important passage. Verse 9. When it's talking about the widows, it says, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man well reported up for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work, but the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. Now again, here's a list of requirements for those women who are destitute in need of care. They don't have a whole lot. Now notice, for one reason or another, they have no children or family to take care of them. And they're 60 years old or over, And they've been the wife of what? One man. That's what it says. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, I haven't read anywhere where women in the Roman Empire were frequently known to have more than one husband at a time. I've never read that. So it can't possibly mean one husband at a time. Because that wouldn't have happened. That's not how the culture was set up. I mean, if anything, women were the ones getting stepped on. Women were the ones being taken advantage of. That's why the Apostle Paul goes on later and says that a husband ought to have a wife and a wife ought to have a husband and they ought to be exclusive to one another. Because he was trying to protect women. Because men thought they could run out and do whatever they wanted and come home to mama who was supposed to be taking care of the house, the kids, and making the meals and still be whatever he wanted her to be. So Paul was really liberating women and trying to help them, not hating them. But see, there was nowhere that I'm aware of reading that women in the Roman Empire, like men, had more than one wife or more than one husband. And yet, when it came to being qualified as a widow indeed, they still point out, the Bible's still clear to announce this particular requirement, one man. See, I don't think it's any different for her as it is for the pastor now, for the bishop. I think it requir- it's talking about one wife, one wife. That's it. The husband of one wife. One man. For her. I think it's pretty simple. I don't think it's easy, but I think it's not nearly as complicated as we'd like to make it. We always have to go back to somewhere out of the Bible to somehow support our thesis when we take away that issue. Start saying, well, it had to be because of this and it has to be because of that. And the word broke down in the Greek means this and this and this, all that. It's funny. Do you know Greek? I don't know Greek. So that means none of you can understand the Word of God. Because you have to know Greek. Well, I don't think we do. I really don't. I don't think you ever have to learn one bit of Greek to know this book in the English language. Now, again, it's not harmful. It, It can be helpful. It can be almost like color in black and white, so to speak, filling in the blanks a little bit. It's nothing wrong with it. But if the Greek has to be understood to... 
to help to, to, to make sense of the, the English, we got a problem. If it complements us, that's one thing. But we got to be careful. So the position of bishop, elder, or pastor, as we call it today, is reserved for those who have been is not reserved for those who have been divorced. The only exception, of course, to that rule would be uh, not divorce, but death. And when there's a death, then a pastor loses a wife or something like that. He would remarry. That's different. That, that's still qualified. That's not a problem. It directly addresses those issues in Scripture. Now, as the church, as I said, continues to grow, there are opportunities, maybe, that there would not be in a smaller church to serve on a staff even, to maybe even receive a paycheck for services rendered in the area of the church. But you don't have to be the pastor, the bishop. I don't really think that it even extends itself to anyone that's doing pastoral duties. I don't think that any of my staff, pastoral staff, should be, be divorced. I think they should be married to one woman. Okay, I see that. But, but on the other hand, if we have a cleaning position, a janitor job, a maintenance man job come along, I don't see that there's any problem with that man being hired on, serving in, in the church. As, I don't care if he's been divorced or not. The Bible doesn't address that. He's doing, his, he's doing a great work. God help us if we didn't have divorcees that were faithful to God. Wouldn't get anything done around here. But this is an area, just like women aren't permitted to teach men, this is an area where God says it's not always an easy pill to swallow. But it is my requirement. So, vigilant. The next thing is vigilant. We've got to hurry. I'm just going to give you two more, and they're real short. Vigilant. The word translated vigilant suggests the idea of wise caution. Paul was saying that the elder must possess self-control, if you will. He's got to be watchful. He needs to be circumspect. He needs to be attentive to discover and avoid danger. And to ultimately provide safety for those in his watch care. Vigilant. He's got his eyes open. He's keeping his, his eyes down the field, so to speak. He's looking for danger. He's trying to ensure that we don't walk into a problem, that we don't end up in a problem. And he's trying to protect people along the way. We know over in the book of Ephesians, the Bible talks about the fact that we're to, to walk circumspectly. Well, again, that's the pastor. He needs to be, of all people, he better be vigilant in this area of being circumspect. Not only that, but we see he's to be sober. This isn't talking about non-drinking at this point. We'll get to that down the road next week. But he's talking here about being sober. And the word for sober, again, describes a person that's sober-minded, very serious, one who has a sound mind and draws wise conclusions. You know, it's amazing today, we talk about this, coming, finding people that have common sense. It's hard to find people with common sense today. It is very difficult. Well, a pastor better be sober-minded. A, a pastor has to be somebody that draws wise conclusions. He's one of those people that better have all the facts before he comes to conclusions, before he makes decisions. How many times do we jump the gun? The other day, honestly, the other day, something was said in my presence. And, 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 and the, what was said could have been misunderstood. Not, not the person said it. The person said it, and it was like, oh, so blah, 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 you know. And I, and I thought, wow, the way that sounds, if I didn't know where that person was and what they were doing, it could be misunderstood to be something bad. Because most people would think the worst of people. 
we don't know anything. We don't have all the, the facts, but we heard this one tidbit and we assume the worst usually because we always jump to conclusions. And sadly enough, we do that even with people that we love and that are closest to us. We'll take somebody like a wife that's been faithful for years and we hear one tidbit from a friend. Did you know that she was... And we go, what? What? Something inside sinks. And we start wondering, is she faithful to us? Is she cheating on me? Is she not being, you know, a woman of integrity and sound morals? And someone says, I'd never think that. Okay. Good for you. Let me tell you what, that's the kind of stuff that happens because we're human and we're flesh. And the truth is, is that the Bible tells us not to be that kind of person, but to get all the facts before we come to conclusions, not to just immediately think we know what's going on, not to even consider it, not to even think about it, not to dwell on it till we've got all the facts. Because it's more likely it ain't the case anyway. Pastor needs to be one that is sober-minded. He's, he's drawing wise conclusions. He's serious-minded. He's thinking straight. He has to be known for his discretion and he needs to be careful. He can't jump to conclusions. Those things are important because those kind of things have put men out of the ministry. A man jumps to conclusions because he has a family or two that's disgruntled with his preaching or his teaching or possibly his position or his direction or his vision. He begins to think that there's some kind of conspiracy against him and the ministry. You'd be amazed how many men have become embittered toward their people, have become so hurt and damaged because they've allowed this thing to blow up in their mind that it doesn't even exist because they did not meet the qualifications because they're that insecure and unstable. I'm not saying that we're not human. All of us are human. But if someone's going to stand in this pulpit... They better be a man that is sober-minded or your life will be miserable. Father, we come to you. We thank you again, Lord, just for the opportunity to...